Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 193rd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. As we approach January, we're starting to think about healthy habits for the new year. Our guest today has a habit that I want to master in 2023. Dr. Mike Rucker is the author of the upcoming book, The Fun Habit, available January 23rd. I think this is a perfect podcast to be released in the holiday season. How about starting this fun habit during the holidays? Dr. Mike Rucker is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. He has been academically published in publications like the International Journal of Workplace Health Management. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, Fox, Thrive, Global, Mindful, Mind Body Green, and more. He currently serves as a senior leader at Active Wellness. So welcome, Dr. Mike Rucker. Hey, thanks for having me, Colleen. Yeah, you bet. So the first question that I ask all my guests is, are you a parent? And if so, what are the ages of your kids? I am a parent, and I have a lovely 11-year-old daughter and a tenacious 7-year-old son. Mm, Those are great ages. Oh, I'm having so much fun with them right now. (laughs) Which we'll talk about that, aren't we? We're going to talk about fun. Yeah. You have a book coming out in January of 23, and it's called The Fun Habit. So can you tell me a little bit about the background about it and why you decided to have that as your passion project. Yeah, so I've been studying positive psychology for some time. I'm a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. When Marty Seglman kind of got big, he came out with a book called Authentic Happiness. And I think he kind of elevated Cheek Sent Me High. You know, flow was out there, but Seglman really brought Cheek Sent Me High's work to the masses. And we all know what flow is now. And I, I really drank from that well. And it served me 
to a great degree. It really helps me enjoy life better, be more grateful. And I kind of paired it with a budding passion for the quantified self movement. To make a long story short, I had moved from LA to San Francisco uh, about uh, 2005. And I got connected with Gary Wolf, who is the head of that movement. And for folks that don't know what the quantified self movement is, it's basically people that track various behaviors, whether that's just a Fitbit and, you know, tracking how much you walk to, you know, what Apple Watch has been able to do with, you know, tracking how many times you stand per hour. And it can get fairly sophisticated from people that do blood draws every week. And so I was using quantified self techniques to really try and optimize my happiness. And I've gotten pretty far. And so I thought I was living this really delightful life up until 2016, where I got smacked in the face with a trifecta of some unfortunate events. My younger brother passed away quite unexpectedly from a pulmonary embolism. I had been an amateur endurance athlete, and I found out quite suddenly that I had advanced osteoarthritis and I wasn't going to be able to run again. Mm. Um, And then my wife got an amazing career opportunity, and she had just had my back through six years of doctoral study. Not that that matters at all, but I wanted to have her back. And so we uprooted ourselves from California and moved to North Carolina So I was sort of having to process all of this stuff while not having this network of family and friends that we had made in California. And so I was trying to use all of these tools of happiness that had really worked well up until that point. And I found that the more that I chased happiness, the less happy I was becoming. And I was starting to identify as unhappy and some interesting negative mental health issues were starting to arise And so being an academic, I wanted to figure out why that was. And maybe serendipitously around that time, a lot of emerging research, the researcher that I really like in this area is, her name is Dr. Iris Mouse out of Cal, was studying how Western ideals of folks that are overly concerned about happiness were actually really making themselves quite unhappy. So the distinction is valuing happiness and flourishing and wanting the world to be a happy place is fine. But folks that sort of perseverate on this notion of why am I not happy or trying to over-optimize happiness, which I had certainly fall victim to, can have really negative mental health consequences. And that certainly happened to me. And so if that was the case, if you can't chase happiness or chasing happiness, you know, has a lot of potential negative outcomes what can you do? And so I dug into the research and realized, and this was kind of paired at the time when mindfulness was really taking off as well, that you can take an action-oriented approach to life and not necessarily chase happiness per se, but use your agency and autonomy to organize your life in a way that's joyful and delightful, even if you're in an emotional state where happiness isn't appropriate, like loss, you know? So this Mm -hmm. would apply for anyone that's lost a loved one, going through divorce, you know, even moving is a loss, right? Because you're losing all that connection of the place that you're familiar with. And so I found that really fascinating because fun as a construct was really attached to play and there wasn't a ton of scientific evidence yet. And so I think, you know, anyone that enjoys research when there's a big research gap, you really want to dig in. And so one, it was self-serving because it was starting to work. I was like, wow, okay. I kind of knew autonomy already from workplace wellness, which was what I had um, done my dissertation on. We know that when autonomy is not part of the workplace, that's when people tend to suffer. And one of the best ways to create ill being, you know, in the workplace is to kind of 
redact autonomy and that's playing out in real time right now with Elon and Twitter, right? I mean, which is failing in a tremendous way, in my opinion, that everyone is just leaving because that's probably going to turn into one of the most toxic work environments ever. But using that same method of agency and autonomy in your personal life, you know, if you have domain over your work and you're able to thrive there, what happens if you use those same principles in your personal life? Because so many of us are overprescribed in our adult life, especially parents, right? And so that's what I did. How can I reclaim some of this agency and autonomy? And once I did, everything turned around and it was a beautiful thing. Yes. I just thought that was really interesting. You said happiness is a state of mind and fun is something that you can do. So it's more empowering to chase after fun because there's something you could do about it. Yeah, I've seen it slice and dice different ways. And the two that really resonate with me is you could either look at happiness as an act of introspection because it really requires you to stop and get out of the moment. So if you prescribe to that definition, then it really can't be an act of mindfulness because you have to kind of stop what you're doing and, and wonder if you are happy. But at the very minimum, most will admit, at least in an academic context, that it, it takes evaluation, right? And fun doesn't. Like you can see fun and kids <laughs> playing, you know, on the playground or dogs playing in the dog park. I meant fun is what fun is. And um, in that regard, you know, it's kind of a cousin of flow. And so devising opportunities, whether that's, you know, being deliberate about what environments you are in, what people you're doing things with, or the activities that you're actually enjoying, you can bias your time towards delight and joy, where happiness is kind of a lagging indicator, right, of how things are going. And so happiness ends up being this great byproduct of having fun. But if you wait for happiness to happen, then you're kind of wasting all this time where you could be having fun. It's an interesting paradox. That's so good. I love that. So how does fun keep us healthy and how is it good for the development of the brain? So we know from looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint that it really is sort of the glue that creates social connection. So when we're curious and we're looking for opportunities for awe and wonder and self-expansion, that's generally in the pursuit of having fun, exploring sort of the area. And then we know that from studies, you know, the big Harvard study about what helps us keep vitality through our aging process is that loneliness is one of the biggest predictors of negative health outcomes. And so using fun as a tool for either connection to other people or connections to things that light you up if you tend to have an introverted slant, using that as a tool to integrate all of these experiences that contribute to better well-being, again, has been shown over and over again to sort of be the supportive glue that keeps us happy. Yeah. Fun and play get a bad rap sometimes in our culture. It's kind of all work and no play and with a big value and productivity and pressure to get ahead. So what would you say about that? The way that I've figured out how to explain this in the easiest way is that we now know through various empirical research that when we aren't engaging in leisure, and unfortunately, U.S. is one of the worst, like we're at the bottom tied with Thailand, I think, with regards to how we use leisure compared to work, that we're less productive, right? And so if you look at it as a simple math equation, that if you have recharged your batteries and you're living a life of vitality in any given 40-hour week, you can produce 
two times the amount you normally would, right? That's wow. 40 times two, right? That's 80, but you're working 60 hours a week. And so you have depleted energy and low batteries and you're only able to produce a normal amount. That's 60 times one, right? So, I mean, that's just easy math, right? So we know over and over again that people that come to work with the type of energy that they need. And so this, there, there's kind of a double-edged sword here. One, it's being engaged at work, but two, it's the ability to have some sort of transition ritual. So you actually own your time after work. Those are the folks that are able to produce the most. One of the things that I get into, into the book for folks that want to go a level deeper is why that has become strained in our society today is that we've moved to knowledge work, right? When it was, mm-hmm. for anyone that's read Daniel Pink's Drive, and there's a host of other books that kind of dig into this, there was a big switch from algorithmic work, right? Creating widgets and cogs for people where you knew what your quota was. And once you hit that, you knew the day was over and you could go on with your life and then sort of enjoy the life that you had architected for yourself. With knowledge work and also with the advent of smartphones, we never know when the workday is over. And so yeah. because of that, we don't have the ability to unwind and really take back time so that we can be our best selves, whether that's at work or being parents. We know that people that are able to do that, to either bifurcate their lives, which is a little bit more difficult, or at least put bumper rails on their time. So they're taking back a little bit of time for themselves where their time isn't an extension of work. And an example of that would be you think that you're spending time with your daughter, but half the time you're on your phone answering emails. So you're kind of half there. That ends up still just being work. It's not like a 50-50 proposition. It's more like a 95%, 5% proposition, right? Not only that, what's worse is you're modeling bad behavior for your child, right? And so, you know, what I see time and time again, and maybe you see it in your practice is the parent wondering, well, my child's always distant. They're always on their phone when I'm talking. And yet, you know, if they really paid attention to what they were doing, they essentially taught them that behavior. Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think the big lesson here in this dialogue is that, you know, figuring out, especially if you're a knowledge worker, you don't have fine defined lines between work and your personal life. How can you develop that? You know, how can you understand what the finish line is? Because that's one of the biggest challenges in our modern age. That's so good. Yeah. I mean, I know that's a struggle in my own life as an entrepreneur is where is that finish line? And so that it's so tempting to just keep going to get to the finish line, but like it is not well-defined. Yes. That's really good. Yeah. I think there's several strategies to sort of do that. One, I really love this book by Paul Jarvis called The Company of One, where he sets his goals and once he hits them, he kind of moves on because so many of us, you know, entrepreneurs, especially I, I am a recovering entrepreneur. Yeah. It's like, you know, we've been kind of taught that there is no end, right? If we can get more. And that means that if we really wanted to, we could work all the time. And so for anyone that is an entrepreneur, a famous book, E-Myth talks about it. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you hate your boss, right? Like, Because <laughs> they're the worst. <laughs> Absolutely. So what's the play model you talk about that creates more opportunities for joy and delight in our everyday life? Yeah, so that's just a simple tool. Really, it's one that's utilized a lot, but oftentimes we're taught by productivity experts to optimize our time for productivity, right? And so I'm just switching the script there and saying, 
Okay, figure out what that means for you. Maybe it's 50 or 60 hours out of the week, but there's 168 hours in your week. And likely there's a lot of opportunity that with either uh, simply exchanging activities or simple reframes that you could find a lot more delight and joy. So play stands for pleasing, L stands for living, A stands for agonizing, and Y stands for yielding. And without getting too deep into it, just because I know, you know, we have some other questions to get through. It's really a way to categorize in four different categories, how you're spending your time. And yielding is the one that we'll talk about now because it's the low hanging fruit. It's the things that we believe are fun, but really aren't, you know, generally mm -hmm. when we peel them back, we realize like, wow, that's not time I really spent in something that did bring me joy and delight when I look at it, you know, in a retrospective fashion. In our pre-interview, we talked about, you know, parents that take their child shopping and kind of like, oh, this is going to be a delightful activity. And they realize in the end that maybe it wasn't. And so oftentimes there are things that are habitual that will happen in that manner that we can easily change. One example I like to bring up in my own life is that I was taking my daughter to gymnastics and it was really just an activity to get her active, just get her off the couch. And we all want our kids off the screens. Right. And so, and I think we all do that. You know, we, we find sports and other activities that our kids enjoy, but she was fairly young. So it was really just to get her moving. And I would sit there and watch her play for an hour and, you know, it was pretty trivial stuff. So even though I really enjoyed her smile and she'd look at me from time to time, the majority of the time, you know, to take my own medicine, I was in that 95% zone where I wasn't really there because I was bored. So I was on my phone. So what I did was I switched that activity. You know, I had some insight because I've done this work. And I was like, if the goal is really to just get her active, why don't we take a dance class together mm -hmm. so that we create joyful memories during that hour? And I'm also active because I love dancing and I didn't have to do it in front of a big crowd. And I was able to find an instructor that was able to do private lessons for us essentially at the same cost. So that wasn't from a place of privilege either. You know, it was essentially trading dollars for dollars and what a big lift, right? Like she was enjoying herself, but it was really a, a solo activity. And I was sitting there not really having that much fun. And I was able to switch that one hour a week into something that brought a lot of joy and delight into both of our lives because she was so enthusiastic that her dad was joining her. We were doing dances to Disney's Descendants, which she really loved at the time. And yeah, it was kooky, but it was just so much I better. I love it. Than, yeah, sitting and watching her basically essentially burning an hour of a parental duty turned into something a lot of fun for both of us. I love that story. I love it. Yeah. And I can promise you moms, and you actually know this, that taking your daughter bathing suit shopping, <laughs> that is not going to be fun. So just telling you, if, in case you think it's going to be fun, let me tell you, it's not going to be. So what do you think blocks fun? What do you think are the enemies to fun? I think it's that, especially for parents, we're coming to our lives and our schedules from a sense of duty, right? And so the underpinnings of my ideology here comes from transactional analysis, right? For the most part, we have three different roles, right? We can be in a childlike state and adults often do that, you know, like childish banter with your partner or whatever. Um, we have an adult state, which is really the heuristics for folks. Sorry that I'm using all this kind of geek language, but, you know, these 
sort of normative behaviors that we have and what we've been led to believe. And then this parental role, which is generally modeling what our parents did for us, right? Especially in the Western world, we've really been led to believe that we always can only operate as adults in one of those two states, that we're either directing our child in some way because we want them to be a better person, or we have to oversee what they're doing from a sense of duty, similar to watching my child in her gymnastics class, right? Or the parent at a park that just sits on the bench and doesn't really engage their child. That's like, okay, this is their time, but you know, for whatever reason, I'm doing it just because I'm a parent. And we have this tremendous opportunity to engage like children, which is a huge benefit for a whole host of different reasons. We've already touched on some of them, that that brings that curiosity, that childlike wonder and awe that we can reacquaint ourselves with when we're playing with our kids, even if it's just seeing the world through their eyes and like them light up because they saw a butterfly fly away and like, how could that happen? And getting reacquainted with just how amazing the world is to nonlinear thinking, right? So as adults, because we're having so much information thrown at us all the time, We can forgive ourselves because to make sense of the world, because it is so complex, we have to figure out our own algorithm and the way we operate. The problem is, is that once those are set, we tend to kind of go in autopilot and we're just like, okay, this is the way it is. And I have this normative behavior and I'm going to habituate it. And But when we get in those childlike states, we're allowed to sort of break that apart and start to play with ideas And when you do it enough, it starts to transcend into other things that you do. You'll find that you're more creative at work because you're able to be like, wow, okay, that's an interesting idea. Let me play with it a little bit and let me combine it with another idea out of here. Like things stop becoming so A to B to C and they start becoming, you know, this beautiful playground. And so to answer your question discreetly, it's primarily because we are coming from this sense of duty. And what are the underpinnings of that? You know, a lot of it has to do with there's still this Puritan work ethic that drives us here in the West. And also hustle culture has become pervasive. You know, we see, you know, especially for entrepreneurs, you know, if we follow the wrong people, you know, you're only going to get results if you 10x, you know, answering emails on the toilet, right? Like if you're, if, you know, if, I mean, it's, it's that crazy though. Like they're literally people that say that, right? Fit everything into every nook and cranny. And so peeling that back and starting to challenge some of the things that, you know, really paying attention and being deliberate about how you spend your time, even if you can just recapture one or two hours out of that 168, you'll start to see this tremendous benefit as simple as it sounds. And then you'll start moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I put a high value on the connection between a parent and their kids. Like that's just foundational in my work. Because I think with this mentality, we can fall into the trap of the end result, like the means justify the ends. It's not true. Yeah, it's absolutely not true. But I'm going to tell you something that you're talking about. So this happened a couple of weeks ago is, you know, my daughter's 26, but her and her boyfriend came in and spent the night at my house. And then after dinner, the boyfriend said to me, why don't you grab your guitar? So I grabbed my guitar 
And then it was like Battle of the Bands. He would play a song and then I had to try to figure out how to play it on the guitar. And it was just super spontaneous. And of course, like I was missing like, you know, 90% of the chords, but it was super, super fun and playful. And before you know it, we're all up and dancing around. I was a total kid. And my daughter told me that he said, oh my God, I just love your mom. So I just think play helps us connect. No, and it absolutely. just brings us so close. Yeah. And I, especially if you're connected to what you're doing, right? Like clearly you have a passion for music. And I would go a step further that the connections you made with those two, right? Like there's a certain amount of equity in life and like, but it's small, you know, it's measured in inches. And so a lot of times we take that for granted. But if you look yes. back at what we've discussed, right? Like where things break down is if you are doing things just to sort of pacify time or doing it out of sense of duty and not really connected to the fact that you want to be connected to the person in front of you. And so that's another good yes. measuring stick, right? Like for some reason, there's some sort of disconnect or discontent either or, you know, looking at that and, and trying to figure out why that is, right? Because that is where mm -hmm. loneliness lives when you feel disconnected, you know, from whatever it is that you're passionate about, whether that be your kids or the world at large. And so, yeah, I think yes. that connection is an important word with regards to the corpus of what we're talking about. Yeah. All right. So you have two rules of having fun with your kids. And then I'm going to combine that with like, have you always done that with your own kids or have you had a parenting failure? <laughs> I mean, we've already kind of gotten into it, but discreetly it's follow their lead, you know, especially if you feel disconnected to them, like, you know, allow them to have a voice because so many of us don't, we want to prescribe. And so trying to understand what it is that they want to do first so that you can come to a place of co-creating experiences with some empathy. But that said, playing isn't play if you're not both having fun, right? And so if you are engaging in activities and you're just kind of sitting there and you feel like it's a waste of time, like all of it's you know, sort of agonizing to you, but you're hiding that, that's ultimately going to over time kill you inside. And your child's going to understand that you're not really into it either because they're way better mind readers than we give them credit for. Right. Yeah. And so let them have a voice, but then also realize that you have one too and create these experiences that are fun for both of you. And so you cued me up to share where I got this wrong and sort of learned this lesson <laughs> the hard way. But I was really wanted to go to this festival in Nevada called the Rise Festival, which is essentially a lantern release. It was right after my brother passed. So it's semi-spiritual, right? I mean, it definitely attracts a lot of families, but a lot of people write, you know, interesting messages on their lantern. And then I think tens of thousands, definitely thousands of people then all release the lanterns at once. And it's this sort of beautiful thing in the desert with a lot of music and crying and hugging and things of that nature. My daughter really loved the movie Tangled. So that's not necessarily mm -hmm. released in the air, but she loved the lantern scene. And so I was like, what a great way to bond with her, right? And so I took her to this, but she was a six-year-old. And when we got there, you know, here I was wanting to have the spiritual experience and like have her enjoy it with me, but, you know, really just like get heady about it. And instead she was trampling over everyone's 
blankets you know she was checking out people's <laughs> lanterns she wanted to draw as soon as we re- we released the lantern she wanted to do it again which wasn't really the way that <laughs> thing was and so it, it really ruined my time because I wasn't being mindful of the fact that she's also a person that had you know and she wanted it to be her way and I was stuck in that parent adult mode right I didn't realize that I had invited her to play and we weren't playing at all. Instead, I was instructing the whole time. And so I got so frustrated and ultimately I was not a good adult about it. Maybe I was in the worst part of the child mode, throwing my own tantrum and we went to go get food. And I remember the lines were so long. Once all the lanterns were released, everybody wanted food. We were just about to to get our French fries or whatever we were buying. And she said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're right there. And I'm like, Please just hold it. And sure enough, she peed her pants. And it was like a, and at that moment when she peed her pants, I just, everything broke for me. I realized how asinine I had been, you know, the last hour, like, and I wanted to lock in that lesson. I wanted to realize like, yeah, this wasn't a relationship. This was an exercise and I ruined it for both of us. Now that I played with those two rules as simply as they sound, you really can't go wrong, you know, because even when something does go awry, you can both laugh about it because, you know, there was buy-in from both of you. So at the end of the day, you know, she had kind of realized that I was sad and she gave me a pass and I hoisted her little body on my shoulders, even though it soaked my shoulders and urine. And, and we laughed all the way back to the car while eating terrible French fries. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. So yeah, that makes me think of, and I'm sure you've heard the expression forced family fun. Yes. So what do you think about forced family fun? I think it's a bad idea. I mean, <laughs> I know it more in the working context, but I certainly do know it in the, the family context. And I think, you know, sometimes just like work, there's going to be times where it's necessary, right? You know, depending on the family unit and how sort of this, you know, social structure works within. But I think it's something to avoid for sure, because ultimately, you know, using my own ideology, I, we have a finite amount of time. And so it's a poor use of time. And I think a simple reframe or just getting creative with the folks that are involved can turn that right around. I mean, again, just using simple strategies of being empathetic, being curious about what others like and trying to come to some sort of consensus is mm-hmm. the way to resolve that issue. Now, when you're talking about complex family problems at like a wedding, you know, which you are going to see that. And then again, the same thing happens in corporate culture. It gets more sticky. It's not like we're going to solve it on a podcast. But again, I think a good starting place is being empathetic, curious about what people really want to do, co-creating these experiences in a way that's going to be joyful for everyone. Yeah. And I think whenever you get into a power struggle with your kids, I mean, fun is dead. Yeah. So just to back up what you're saying. So is it possible, and my audience is moms, so is it possible for moms of teens to have fun even themselves and with their teens. And and how can parents become better at fun? First, it's just brainstorming, right? Reconnecting with what you did find joyful. Like, I don't know if you've always played the guitar, but a lot of parents that I speak with, it really is reminding them, like, you had things before you were a parent that were enjoyable. And what does that mean? And then it's challenging sort of societal norms, right? Like another one, again, that seems so pedestrian, but that I see time and time again 
is the idea that parents can go out on a school night. That's actually invigorating, right? It's like, well, I'd love to dance, but the dance class is only on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Well, then get a sitter. And guess what? You're not going to come home tired. You're going to be more invigorated nine times out of 10 than what you generally do, which has been to watch Netflix, right? Which again, your retaining is fun. But at the end of the day, if you can't remember the episode, you know, a week later, Mm -hmm. then it probably wasn't. Because when I get into this mode of dialogue, a lot of people think that I'm trying to villainize, you know, either social media or, or media watching. I'm not. Like if you have a loving family ritual where you all sit down, you know, and watch Yellowstone or whatever your show is. And you guys can, you know, a year later talk about it, you know, at a family picnic and you all laugh and remember the characters. That's not a waste of time, but there's so many of us just plop down on the couch and we'll watch whatever's on and couldn't tell you what it was about the next week. Or what researchers have found is that if you do replace that with an activity that really does light you up, the first couple of weeks might be a challenge as you're going through that behavior change. But if you reconnect with what that was, then you end up really enjoying that and you actually are a better version of yourself. And so for those that think that that's being selfish with your time, it's not because then when you are showing up as a parent, you're your better self. You're more likable. You have more energy. And then sometimes I'm challenged, well, finding a sitter is expensive, And there's a simple solution for that too. If you have a network at all within your community, doing a child swap ends up being a huge win-win as well. Because especially Mm -hmm. for your audience that has older kids, they can self-regulate. You you know, the parents really only there to make sure they don't burn down the house. And the kids love to get together. And then you have this free opportunity. So you don't have the burden of your personal activity, you know, also having this additional cost. And generally, I would say if you're if there's a disconnect with your partner, you start by making it a date night because generally, you know, kind of shoring that back up. If there isn't a lot of time for a union between the partnership of the parents, that's a good place to start. But it could be a solo activity as well. You know, whatever you think is going to sort of be the most beneficial for your own vitality and well-being. I think one of the things that blocks moms from having fun is not valuing it and thinking that it's not important. And so really both you and I are saying it's incredibly important. I think it's important for us as adults to make adulthood look attractive. And if we are just producing, producing, we're not smiling, we're not having fun. I mean, that's a repellent. I mean, that's why our teens are in the room. They don't want to be around that heaviness and intensity. And I find is when I'm lighter and I'm playful it's like it attracts teens. They like want to be around us. That's like their language, Absolutely. like being spontaneous. And also I would say it's the things that we think are going to be fun activities. It's, it's often, it's like I said, it's not the big shopping trips or the big vacations. It's the little tiny moments. So sometimes it's like it didn't cost any money at all. It's just having our eyes open, like, oh, this is the moment, like the dog has just stolen someone's shoe and running around the house. And it's playful. It's just, it's just recognize like little tiny moments that kind of just happen. Yeah. And you're exactly right. So there's a lot to unpack there, but what I would say briefly is that science, and if you want to look at the researcher here is Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, we know those little things are undervalued because we just don't, we think they're trivial, right? This, these are 
things, you know, going back to the play model that I would classify in the pleasing category. And the folks that are the happiest are the ones that have high indexes in those types of activities, because they're the ones that make us realize that our life is joyful, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have indexed all these nice little pieces of variety, you know, our lives are mosaic and rather than just kind of gray, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but we do devalue them, especially in Western society, because they're not productive. And yet they're the things that make us feel happy. And so making sure that you're deliberate about that, I think when I do look at a specifically working mothers, and you already mentioned this, but just to kind of summarize it, there are three primary blockers, right? There's this sense of duty or guilt, like, well, I'm the glue of this family, so I just can't take time off for myself. That just requires the reframe of like, that. that's not correct. <laughs> you know, you... I think to use your own words, you do need to schedule in little treasures because that, mm -hmm. um, or you're not your best self. So if you're someone where guilt is a good driver, you feel like guilt is what's keeping you stuck to not being able to do it, then reframe that thought and be guilty about the fact that if you don't do that for yourself, you're not being the best mm -hmm. person for your family, right? Mm -hmm. um, some people think they don't have the time. And so that's when I would say doing a time audit is extremely helpful because you realize you absolutely do have the time. And then you can just laugh at yourself for the idea that you don't think you can find an hour or two within that 168 hours to sort of reclaim and play with this. And then others, as we closed the previous section, is that they undervalue it, right? Like it's just, well, it's not because I don't want to do it or because I don't have time. I, why would I? And we absolutely know why, again, because it increases vitality and it also makes us, our lives feel like they're worth living. And so I would challenge any three of those sort of roadblocks and I've given, you know, hopefully strategies that could help you overcome them. Yeah. And, you know, things like resentment and anxiety take up a ton of time. I mean, you can just start in the nooks and crannies, like five minutes a day. Can you do that? Can you do 10 minutes a day? Can you do 20 minutes a day? When I talk to moms, I talk about the 24-7 monitor, like you're managing, 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 managing. So let that go for 20 minutes. Let it go for 30 minutes. It's so interesting what I see is when moms will intentionally do something fun for themselves, like go out with your friends or go see a movie that you like. Your kids don't bother you as much. Like it doesn't get under your skin. And that resentment goes down because you're like, you're enjoying your life. Yeah, it certainly is a great way to build resilience. Absolutely. So this is so good. If you're listening to this during the holiday season, like this is definitely the time to let some things go so that you can have more room for some fun. Yeah. And I think one of the things that some people can benefit from is coming out of the pandemic, right? I mean, we really, this is a unique opportunity because we did have to be deliberate and evaluate how we were spending our time because so much was disrupted. I think the opportunity is closing, but folks still became intimately aware of how they were spending their time. And so, you know, if you're still doing that, if you're still kind of questioning your routines and the way you've habituated behavior, like use that also as an opportunity, right? To go, okay, well, I do want to rebuild. And then also using the new year as a temporal landmark. That's always helpful too, right? You yeah, can, it is. It yeah. is. And I just love the title of your book. There's a quote that I really love that I want to read. When I say choose your own adventure, I don't mean cross-country travel to party with strangers or anything so radical. I mean living life intentionally 
starting with a conscious decision to adopt a bias towards fun each and every day. And the life you have now, not some fantasy of tomorrow, call it a fun habit. I mean, I think that would be so great to take into the new year is that motto. That's just so awesome. Thank you. I saw you made my day for bringing that up. So I appreciate that. I'm grateful. Yeah. So what a great gift you can give yourself for the new year, which your book is coming out in January, right? That's correct. Yeah. All right. So any last advice you want to give the moms listening and then tell us how we can, can they pre-order your book or how can they get in touch with you? Yeah. So I would go back and say, try and recapture that one hour. You know, if you're someone that feels like life is overprescribed, just play around with one hour a week for at least four or five weeks. Cause the first couple two might feel like a burden, right? Because you're adjusting sort of to this new normal that you're creating for yourself. But I would say that with quite a lot of confidence that nine out of 10 of you will see a huge lift and it will become sort of additive and won't take away from anything else. We'll create this upward spiral of momentum that you'll really enjoy. And then thanks for the invitation. If you want to learn more about my work and what I'm doing, my website's michaelrucker.com and the book is The Fun Habit and it's available anywhere that you buy books right now for pre-order. All right. That sounds awesome. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Colleen. You're welcome. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms and Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.